Well, good morning to all of you here in the sanctuary, those of you in the fellowship hall, those of you online. My name is David. I'm serving as the acting senior pastor, and I'm excited to jump into God's word with you this morning. You probably didn't know it, but you were walking into a church fight today. Uh, You know, watching fights is a fairly common thing to do, really. Uh, Millions pay money to watch fights on pay-per-view, and and not just pay-per-view TV. About 20 years ago, that's when reality TV started. Remember that? And and basically, uh, reality TV is engineered and edited episodes of conflict. And some of you are thinking, I'm far too refined for boxing and far too refined for reality TV shows. But we have to admit that, that much of our great literature actually consists of battles, whether they're emotional or physical, pertaining to nations and armies or lovers and families. It's just battles and conflicts and fights poured out in prose. Uh, think of King Lear uh, in its most basic uh, form. It's a family fight on full display. It just happens that the dad is the king of Britain. (laughs) But the fight that you're going to see this morning is a church fight. Now, relax. There's not going to be a shouting match. Nathan and I are not going to go to blows here. I know better than that. He's from Alabama. I don't mess with him because of that. But the passage we're looking at involves one of the most significant conflicts in church history. And I know even mentioning the word church fight, for for many of you, uh, you bear the scars, you bear the sorrow of church battles, of of conflict gone wrong, of disagreements done poorly. I know this far too well, being the son of a pastor, and it, it grieves me. Some of us might even be on the opposite end, sitting here thinking, I'm a brand new Christian. I didn't know arguments happened in the church. Don't we all love Jesus? Isn't this the local gathering of the shiny, happy, nice people club? (laughs) Well, as we make our way through Acts, we see that conflict has existed in the church pretty much from the word go. So we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter it even in our church family today. We didn't camp on it, but back in Acts chapter 6, we see that one of the first fights in the early church, it grew out of this cultural dynamic where the Greek-speaking Jews say, hey, our widows aren't getting the same kind of attention and care that the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows are. Hey, what's up with that? And out of that, the office of deacon is born as a way to resolve this conflict in mercy ministry. Well, today we're coming to Acts 15, and we're in the midst of another church fight from the apostles, right? The disciples, the followers of Jesus. And we're forced to ask ourselves this question. Are there things worth fighting for in the church? Are are there things that are worth fighting for in the church? And if so, how do we engage in conflict in a God-honoring, people-loving way. What's God's plan for making peace in the church? In other words, what you fight about, okay, and how you fight about it 
really matters. So let's start by reading the first 11 verses of chapter 15 to get a sense of what the conflict is about. And then we're going to pick up in verse 22 and read through 31 to hear a little bit about the resolution. All right, Acts 15, follow along with me in your devices or your Bible. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now skip down to verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this text, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts so that we might truly understand the nature of the gospel and how to contend for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So three points, like normal today, we're going to walk through this under three headings, conflict, peacemaking, resolution. There's a lot there, so let's jump in. Let's look first at the conflict. There is something worth fighting for in this chapter. There's something worth fighting for in this chapter. Now, like all fights, which we all have, (laughs) whether they're with our spouse, our parents, our siblings, or our roommates, whether it's on the basketball court, at a bar, at a school, in the office, there's usually something that sets the fight off. You know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I have. Sometimes when you have one of those knockdown, drag-out fights, a few weeks later, you can't even remember what you were arguing about. I'm just mad, but I don't even remember why anymore. And you have to ask, was it really worth it? What about this fight here in Acts 15 in the first century? What sets it off, and is it really worth it? Now, if you were here last week, try and remember last week's sermon. The the church, this early church after the resurrection of Jesus, continues to grow and multiply all throughout Asia Minor. Paul and Barnabas travel over 500 miles preaching the gospel, appointing leaders, and starting new churches. And we were reminded last week, we're not crazy for doing the same thing today. For starting churches in Ashburn and sites in Fairfax and supporting churches in Berlin and Togo, it's not crazy to do this. Maybe it is crazy, but it's the right kind of crazy. And when we come to Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas have just finished sharing all that God has done among the Gentiles. They come back to their sending church to Antioch. They're given a missions update, a testimony, and they're sharing about all of these amazing things that God is doing in the region of Asian Minor with the gospel. And then some fellas show up from the Jerusalem church, and they're teaching this nugget right here as a part of their curriculum in Sunday school in verse 1 of our text. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. It doesn't get much clearer than that, right? They're saying you cannot be made right with God that all these Gentiles, Gentiles or anybody who's non-Jewish, can't find forgiveness and eternal life unless they follow this particular part of the ceremonial laws, this particular custom. They have to be circumcised to become Jewish. (laughs) And I love the next words in verse 2. It's so understated, right? And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, (laughs) I'm going to start using that now. You know, after a big argument, I'm just going to say, you know what? My wife and I, we just had no small dissension and debate. (laughs) What's Luke saying here? He's saying, yeah, they didn't have a small disagreement. They had a big one. (laughs) Why? Why? Because the nature of the gospel was at stake. Who is in the family of faith, and how do you get in? That's what's at stake here in Acts 15. 
And we need to be careful here that we aren't quick to write off those who raise this point as simply, ah, there's those troublemakers or there's those exclusivists. We need to be charitable here in that there is a lot of change going on in this season. There's this transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. The Messiah, Jesus, has come, and things are going to be as they have always been planned from eternity, but from the view on the Jerusalem streets, it can feel like everything is changing. Suddenly, there's Gentiles joining our worship, and not just in the synagogue and becoming God-fearers, but now you're having to acknowledge it wasn't always easy to discern about how to go about things in the church. Presumably, as we know, everybody didn't get a vision like Peter did. There's a lot of change happening right now that they're trying to catch up with. So what kicks off this fight? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And we have two conflicting news stories. One is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the other story is saying, yeah, grace and faith are good, plus you have to do this one more thing. <laughs> you got to be circumcised. But we have to remember this. Oh, church, we have to remember this. The gospel is not good advice about how to live it is good news about how Jesus lived for us. <laughs> Adults, students, kids, family, and friends, please hear this. Christianity is not good advice about how to live. Sure, that's a part of it, but it is good news about what Jesus has done for us. It is good news about what Jesus has done for us. Salvation is not something that you and I can achieve. Salvation is something that we receive. That's why it's called a gift. And we don't earn this gift. We don't deserve this gift by following rules, but by simply receiving the free gift of salvation through repentance, I repent not only of my bad works, but even my good works because they're not enough. But Jesus is. And I throw my life wholly on him and him alone. I'd almost just want to end the sermon there. And some of you are like, I'd be up for that. Because I just want to drive that point home. We cannot camp there long enough. Think about Paul. Paul's out at the height of his career, planting churches, writing letters, missionary journeys, and he says, time out. We got to go back to the church at Jerusalem because we have to get this right. The gospel is important. Grace changes everything, not grace plus something else changes everything. This is of utmost importance. So that's the issue, but then how does the church go about dealing with it? I love it. There's peacemaking. There's an intentional process for wrestling through this as a covenant family. How did they handle the conflict? Look down at verse 2 and 6. It describes the process. They got the apostles and the elders together. 
what we would call a session or a presbytery or a general assembly when you get church leaders together to wrestle through hard things. And note two things they don't do, okay? Number one, they don't ignore the issue. They don't ignore the issue. Friends, there's not the approach of being too nice, too gentle, too polite to disagree. Or, or too concerned or insecure about what others think to have hard conversations. Nor are they just too apathetic or tired of dealing with it. Now, that doesn't give you permission to just be upset about anything you want to be upset about. But those types of attitudes, ignoring it, will lead to the neglect of important issues that we cannot ignore. So they don't ignore important issues. Second, they don't pull rank. Mm. They don't pull rank. Paul doesn't show up and say, hey, with all due respect, check my work because I'm the one who started all these new churches, so stay in your lane, bro. (laughs) You know what? There's no bullying there. There's no manipulation. And let me be clear, things like that should have no place in the church. No bullying, no manipulation from church leaders. And I'm sorry to say that many times church leaders have been guilty of that. And if you've been on the opposite end of that, I'm truly sorry. There is no cult of personality in Acts 15. There is a process of leaders for debate, okay? So you don't ignore it, you don't pull rank. So what do you do? Well, that's what happens in verses 11 through 18. And basically we have the minutes recorded by the clerk, Luke, and he records three speeches about this conflict. In verses seven through 11, Peter stands up first and he gives a speech about the conflict and he shares from his own experience. He says, hey, remember Cornelius back in Acts chapter 10 and 11? Remember that guy? Remember when the Holy Spirit had me show up to his house, preach the gospel to him, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him? He was immediately made clean. It wasn't like, hey, Cornelius, that's great, but get the bacon out of the fryer. We need to circumcise you, and then you can become a Christian. Peter says, that's not what happened. He says he believed the gospel and the Holy Spirit cleansed their heart by faith. That was a big thing for Peter to say. (laughs) But Peter doesn't stop there. He makes a second argument in verse 10. And he says, and besides Cornelius, let's talk about us. He says, have we been able to keep all the 600 plus Jewish laws? No. He says, and no matter how hard we've tried to keep the law, we never felt righteous before God. So why should we expect the Gentiles to do something that we can't even do? (laughs) We know our only hope is grace. And so grace has to be their only hope as well. So that's Peter's argument. You're thinking, all right, that's pretty good. But wait, there's more. In verse 12, then Paul and Barnabas, they get up and they give their argument. We don't have the full text of their speech, but basically they say, hey, 
Let's keep it simple. There is a lot of signs and wonders. There are all kinds of things that the Spirit is doing among the Gentiles. He's at work. We're having thriving multi-ethnic churches, and they're not having to become culturally Jewish. And so that's the way the conversation's going, right? And then James stands up to make the next speech. And this is a little bit of a sanctified imagination. But James, remember, is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the leader of the church at Jerusalem. So you can probably expect this is a tense moment, and most people are thinking James is going to stand up, and now he's going to put Paul and Barnabas and Peter in their place. But James stands up, and he sides with Paul and Barnabas and Peter, and he jumps in with his reasoning. He's like, experience is good, but let's go to the Word of God. Let's go to prophets. Let's go to the Bible. James gave the closing argument, and he basically, this is the summary of what James says. Hey, from the very beginning, and in prophets like Amos and Jeremiah, God had said that he would establish his covenant people from among all tribes, tongues, and nations, and guess what? Now he's doing it. (laughs) And they're like, Okay, <laughs> we see that. So, so what can we take away from this process? How should we respond when words or deeds threaten the gospel? Notice two things. First, they came together and they studied the word of God. They came together and they studied the word of God. This is our authority. We place ourselves underneath this inspired word of God. And Paul tells us when he writes to Timothy that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. All the things that you and I need personally and together as the body of Christ is here in the word of God, and that is what we appeal to. But second, notice this. We can see how Jesus shepherds and cares for his church by providing elders to protect and to feed the flock with the grace of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus says he gives his church gifts, All of us, and we're going to talk about that this summer. All of us have spiritual gifts that are meant to build up the body of Christ. And one of the gifts that he gives to his church are elders. And the purpose of elders is to shepherd and care and protect and feed the flock of Christ. And the reason that Paul writes in Timothy that we need church leaders is so we don't make a shipwreck of our faith. You see, we all have a temptation to slide back into either legalism, which is where we neglect grace, where we think we earn our salvation, not by grace, but by works, or licentiousness, where we cheapen grace. But friends, the primary roles of elders and pastors is to constantly point us back to the gospel to grace and to say, Jesus changes everything. We have to get that right. And it's not just all of us out in the pews that need this. Our church leaders need it too. And that's one of the reasons why I'm Presbyterian. You you, you know what Presbyterian means? It literally means plurality of elders. (laughs) It's talking about church government. That's exciting, right? (laughs) It's important 
because everyone is accountable to someone. And it's a plurality of leadership. And that is God's gift to the church. You're like, that's enough about church polity. <laughs> Let's move on. All right, I'm with you. So there was conflict, there was peacemaking. And then finally, let's look at the resolution. There is reason for rejoicing. So what do they do? Well, after James makes his speech, then he makes a motion, basically, in verses 19 through 29. He says, you know what we should do? We should send him a letter with a bunch of us celebrating the gospel and reminding them of two things. Honor the Lord with your life because that's right and good and use your freedom to serve others. In other words, we're saved by grace alone, okay? Celebrate. You don't have to become circumcised. We're saved. You don't have to do some outward achievement to have salvation, to be saved. You're saved by grace alone. And that grace, it leads to joyful obedience. What a great example of truth and love. We don't compromise on the word of God, but we also don't use it to tear people down, but to build people up. What can we take away from their example of resolution? I want to go back and highlight a verse that just jumped off the page to me. Verse 19. Look at it. It says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. James sees that God's great aim is to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus. So Jesus has given leaders and a process to protect the peace and purity of the church. It's not the chief end of the church, but how to deal with conflict as they make disciples of all nations. And here's the question I wrestled with in thinking about my own ministry, my own preaching, and thinking about our own church. Are we making it hard for people who may not be like us to hear the gospel? Okay? What kind of restrictions or burdens or constraints are we intentionally or unintentionally placing on people that come into our space? All right? Questions like this. Do people come into our church family and think, oh, I need to believe in Jesus plus vote a certain way? Or I need to believe in Jesus or check a large number of theological boxes exactly right? Or do I need to believe in Jesus plus have a certain wardrobe? Or, or do I need to believe in Jesus plus be over the age of 18 because no one ever seems to address kids or teenagers? Or I need to believe in Jesus and also be an American. Friends, it might not be circumcision or following the ceremonial law, but we should be clear and have eyes wide open that there are still potential pitfalls for us when it comes to troubling those who would turn to God. Are we troubling those who would turn to God? I love this church family. I see so many great things happening in this church family. 
But I want to tell a story about another church because you have to be careful about telling stories in your own church because everybody's like, is he talking about me? (laughs) So you can tell them about previous churches, but it's celebrating a previous church plant that I was involved with. I was involved with one of these uh, church plants and uh, we were doing the giving uh, of the peace um, like we do here. And um, remember giving the peace when you could come up and shake hands or give somebody a hug. And so I'm standing up there and this relatively new woman comes up to me and I just thought she was going to, you know, pass the peace and shake my hand. But she didn't pass the peace. She just said, hey, I'm glad to be here. But my husband, he's out in the parking lot and he's crazy. (laughs) And then she used a not very nice word in front of crazy. Um, And I'm not sure if it was the spirit or what, but I looked at her and I said, that's okay. Jesus loves crazy people. (laughs) And then she smiled and said, well, I'll let him know. (laughs) Now, her husband didn't fit this khaki wearing blue blazer crowd of this particular church, but he would bring his wife to church on his Harley, decked out in leather and tattoos, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful to watch the people of this church love that man into a saving relationship with Jesus and with this church family and completely transform his life and his marriage. And you know what? He was still an awesome bike riding, leather wearing, tattooed man, but now he was just a man loved by Jesus and he was now part of our church family. And a few of the men even got bikes in the church and started riding Harleys with him too. (laughs) The point is, is that sometimes all we have in common is Jesus. And friends, that's all we need. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but Jesus is enough for us to have unity without uniformity. In church, that's my prayer, that we would make Jesus famous by being a family that loves the gospel and people, a church that walks in truth and love, staying together as a family, staying together as a family and working through important and hard conflicts and striving to make our actual unity that already exists in Christ. Our unity is a reality because we are in union with Jesus We are actually the family of God. And because of that, families stay together and work through conflict because it's worth it. And we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And when we do that, Jesus is honored and glorified and people come to know him. And that's what happens in verses 30 through 35. So they leave the church at Jerusalem. They go back to their site at Antioch. They gather everybody together. They read the letter from the church leaders, and it tells us there was great rejoicing. They had a party. And can we just sit in that for a moment? How many church flight fights don't end that way, where there's conflict, and you come back together and you throw a party because you've worked through it together You've developed consensus, and then you party because of what Jesus has done. I just want to camp there. (laughs) But you know what? This wasn't the final fight in Acts. (laughs) Actually, if you read the end of chapter 15, uh, the, the, the bell rings again in the next chapter, and now Paul and Barnabas 
are involved in a conflict with each other. Friends, there's something really encouraging about that. (laughs) I, I love our church family. We're over 75 years old. And in a lot of ways, that means we're stable and we're healthy. You know, the pandemic's been hard. All the changes this last year have been hard. But friends, we're really doing really well. But that doesn't mean that there's not issues and there's conflicts and there's not issues and conflicts ahead. You know why? Because we live in a broken world and there's also brokenness inside of me and there's brokenness inside of you. And thankfully, Acts teaches us not to be surprised by these issues and conflicts. But Acts shows us how to navigate them with grace and truth. So let's be prepared to endure conflict and to come through them stronger because we have spent time studying the scriptures, because we have prayed for our leaders, and we've gone to our leaders in times of need or confusion or concern. And maybe for some of you this morning, you need to pray about serving as one of our church officers or or stepping into the role of a community group leader. And remember, the aim isn't just for the Capital Prez family to survive conflict. It's to be a healthy church so that we can carry out the mission of God so that our neighbors, so that our coworkers, so that our kids at our middle school and high schools and the nations might know the love and grace of Christ and the life that is found in him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this word in Acts 15. It's both challenging and comforting. And Father, I pray for this church family that as we navigate so much change and transition in our culture and in our church that you would protect us. Father, enable us to love one another well so that the world might know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.